Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, England, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, please visit our website at centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following paper was presented by Dr. Elizabeth Phillips of Westcott House, University of Cambridge as part of the Catholic Theology Research Seminar Series. The paper is entitled, The Good Life and the Good Society, University Students and High Security Prisoners Cultivating the Common Good. Thank you for this opportunity, and um, thank you especially. I hope you don't mind that I'm um, using this to, as a sort of trial, um, as a, a first draft of something. So I genuinely would love um, feedback from you. Um, this evening. This is a piece that's actually co-authored by myself and Ryan Williams, who's the colleague that I've been um, convening this prison course with. He's currently based in the Center for Islamic Studies in the University of Cambridge, um, but very sadly, in just about a week or so, he's moving to Australia. Um, so I'm losing that's my... That's right for you, <laughs> <laughs> um, So I'm losing my colleague in this work, but we're going to keep publishing... Um, together because we've, uh, we've been doing this for two years now and uh, we've been um, gathering all sorts of data ethnographically around uh, the, the course that we've been teaching together. So we're just beginning to sort of go through the interviews and start to put together our ethnographic um, observations and this is our first stab at writing something together so I'll be really eager to hear um, some of your feedback. Right, so I'll just jump in. This article describes an unusual initiative that brought university students together with men resident in a high security prison to study theology and philosophy. The course on the good life and the good society, hereafter I'll just say GLGS, was part of Learning Together, an initiative of Cambridge criminologists Ruth Armstrong and Amy Ludlow, seeking to revive a long history of partnerships between UK prisons and universities in a way which is newly inspired by transformative pedagogies. After Armstrong and Ludlow piloted the initiative through two years of teaching criminology courses inside HMP Grindon, we co-convened the first Learning Together course in Theology and Philosophy, which was also the first Learning Together course in a Category A prison. We met for two and a half hours each week for 10 weeks, January to April 2017, with 12 Cambridge students whose subjects included divinity, philosophy, criminology, literature, languages, and economics. Five Cambridge student group facilitators, including four ordinands training for Christian ministry, and 13 Whitemore students, including one member of the prison staff. We explored together ideas of the good in ways that related the individual moral life to the political, as ethical inquiries where theology and philosophy intersect. At the end of the course, we gathered a final time with the students to process the content and experience of the course and to discuss responses and feedback. As we all shared our perspectives, one of the students found himself unexpectedly and uncharacteristically moved to tears as he addressed the group. He looked, a room, he looked around the room and asked Riley, what is happening in here? His comment not only diffused the emotions of the moment and allowed everyone in the room to have a good laugh, it also encompassed the question that we are exploring as both conveners and researchers of the course. What was going on in there? As scholars of religion and theology, so Ryan Williams, the, um, the co-author of this piece, um, is, a, is a scholar in religious studies, and he's um, specifically, most of his research has been on um, Islam in prisons. 
Uh, as scholars of religion and theology, we argue that religious studies and theological education, TRS, is often learned and taught in ways which limit opportunities for deep and complex engagement with the content and its personal and social implications. In this regard, we enter into long-standing debates within the field concerning the relationship between religious studies and theological education, the interplay of education, personal formation, and social justice, calls for increased interdisciplinarity and inclusivity, and the urgency for the field to contribute to the common good, addressing social problems of marginalization and social exclusion. We offer GLGS as an indication of possibilities for interdisciplinary, inclusive, transformative teaching and learning. Our method is ethnographic, drawing primarily from post-course interviews with the participants, and we begin by considering the methodological importance of this approach. From our ethnography arises an understanding of GLGS as a co-created learning space, which was liminal and bounded. Into this space, students brought the resources of their personal lives, philosophies, faiths, and institutional formation. And within this space, they also felt released from the negative constraints of the formations of the institutions in which they reside. In this richly resourced, liberating, liminal space, the participants not only gained relational experience and insight alongside learning course material, rather, the learning space became a moral laboratory in which participants were able to perform the course content in small yet transformative ways. So my first section on method, moral laboratories and ethnographies of the good. Many frameworks for approaches to TRS, to prison education and to ethics would assume that in order to make valid and or transferable argument about practice, Findings would need to be reported in terms of goals and outcomes, measurable impact, and replicable structures. While we have no questions that such studies can be important and indeed will in many cases be vital for long-term structural transformation, we argue that this is not the only important way to, to report research findings. And further, that it would be impossible to do justice to the participants' experience of GLGS through structural and outcomes-based reporting alone. As co-conveners, we both approach the course and the learning platform with a commitment to taking seriously the richness of the moral and intellectual lives of all the participants. We began with the assumption that knowledge about the good life and the good society would not be delivered from instructors to students, but would be co-produced within the interactions between participants, lecturers, and ourselves. We also shared an understanding of the institutions in which our students reside, both the prison and the university, as communities of moral formation for good or ill. While the stark and absolute differences between the purposes, realities, and conditions of prisons and universities must, of course, not be understated, it is nonetheless also true that at their very best, both sorts of institutions have sought to be and can function as communities in which individuals and groups have structured and unstructured opportunities for shared practices which cultivate moral flourishing and open up possibilities for moral transformation. Williams, my, my co-author, having conducted field work in two high security prisons, had noted that both the abundance of personal moral resources in the lives of individual prisoners and the comparative dearth of opportunities in prisons to engage with questions of the good, which are often seen as divisive. Our course was run in a prison that research de reach, researchers described several years prior as crippled by distrust, where faith was viewed through a risk lens. The climate in high security prisons has undergone continued pressure since the writing of that report. 
Faith functions as a double-edged sword. Opportunities to practice are legally mandated and generally viewed as beneficial to, to prisoners' personal welfare, but are also seen as a cloak beneath which other subversive behavior will occur. In developing a course on ethics as an area of intersection between philosophy and theology, we were acutely aware both of how important faith was in the lives of many of the prisoners, but also how challenging this would be. Phillips, now speak of myself as if I'm not myself, um, <laughs> having taught theological ethics and political theology for over a decade in both university and seminary contexts in the US and the UK, noted both the abstraction from personal experience and social realities in much university TRS offerings, as well as the limited possibilities for students studying theology confessionally to participate in praxis where complex academic theology and engagement with the real lives of others in radically differing contexts were complementary instead of compartmentalized. Particularly striking was the experience of teaching liberative theological perspectives in the abstracted setting of the privileged classroom on the one hand, and sending students out of the classroom um, into practical ministerial experience in settings in which the relationship between the student and context would almost always have an element of paternalism. This brought into our design of the course an awareness of how crucial the combination of the Learning Together platform and the content of GLGS could be for helping TRS students connect their studies to the world and helping students preparing for ministry experience, instead of merely discuss, a liberationist framework within which to encounter people whom they might otherwise see themselves as ministering to. We therefore took seriously that all our students, those resident in prison as well as those in the university and theological colleges, were in the midst of their own moral projects and had both profound moral resources from which to draw as well as profoundly complex com contexts in which to seek moral transformation and flourishing. As we approached both the design of the course content and the design of our research project, we were influenced by the growing body of work in the anthropology of ethics. One important approach in this field, ordinary ethics, sees ethics as part of all ordinary human existence, part of everyday human life, often tacit rather than explicit. And it seeks to bring sustained ethnographic attention to the moral life. Related to this approach are others which advocate ethnographies of the good, a phrase from a seminal article by social anthropologist Joel Robbins, identifying an emerging trend in anthropology within, this is quoting from him now, Joel Robbins, a new focus on how people living in different societies strive to create the good in their lives. The point of this kind of work is not to define what might universally count as good, and its practitioners are neither so panglossian as to, as to claim that any given society has, in fact, achieved the capital G good, nor so Pollyanna-ish as to imagine that societies might achieve it on a regular basis if only we could identify what it is. Their more modest aim is to explore the different ways people organize their personal and collective lives in order to foster what they think of as good and to study what it is like to live at least some of the time in light of such a project. We are also influenced by the well-documented, though by no means uncontested, turns taken in theological ethics of recent decades towards the retrieval of Aristotelian Thomistic virtue <coughs> and towards ethnography. Thus far, we would argue, these two shifts in theological ethics have not yet been in sufficient conversation with one another. Interestingly, while some theological ethics has turned to virtue and ethnography without necessarily connecting the two, some anthropologists, including some advocates of ordinary ethics and ethnographies of the good, have turned to virtue as well, 
so that the connection between ethnography and the retrieval of virtue ethics has figured prominently in some works of social anthropology. Particularly influential for us in this regard has been Cheryl Mattingly's work on moral laboratories. Whereas theological critics of the return to virtue argue that virtue ethics is neither sufficiently realistic nor sufficiently attentive to power, Mattingly's extensive ethnographic work among African-American families in Los Angeles between 1997 and 2011 led her to embrace Aristotelian virtue ethics as the best framework for understanding and describing the moral lives of these families, as she feels it best attends to the locality and transient nature of moral becoming. Far from discrete moral deliberation in relation to fixed rules or desired outcomes, she observed that their moral lives took shape through everyday practices aiming towards flourishing. She argues that what she calls moral laboratories, including sites like soccer fields, clinicians' offices, or funeral services, serve as locations of complex reasoning that engenders ongoing moral deliberation, evaluations, and experiments in how to live. Moral laboratories evoke the image of spaces of possibility, where people are, she says, experimenters of their own lives. Far from conjuring grandiose images of moral becoming found in some philosophical approaches, Mattingly challenges ethnographers to seek out what flourishing looks like and the decisions that allow for flourishing in small moments and small places. Mattingly's work captures the raw and unscripted nature of everyday life, where intentions for living a good life are intertwined with the perils and moments of despair and precarious, often tragic, life circumstance. Her explorations into moral laboratories take seriously disenfranchised people's moral projects and the localities in which these considerations of how to live well are made. Drawing on these trajectories in social anthropology and theological ethics, and seeking to bring them in conversation in new ways, we frame both the content of the course and our research method in terms of ordinary and everyday practice and present it as a small-scale ethnography of the good set in a particular moral laboratory of the GLGS learning space. So that's the boring method part of it. So an experiment in the good life and the good society. Um, a lot of the material from here will be um, quotations from the interviews. So instead of like saying quote every time, I'll try to just change my voice so you can tell them quotes. Can you do different accents? I don't mean accents. I mean <laughs> more conversationally, like this. <laughs> I say my perspective on the whole course has changed dramatically. From doing the first course and from the beginning, the start of it, I kind of viewed it as kind of first like a good adventure, but then partly an experiment. And then I also come to understand that it could, be, it could be something that's a good experiment, not a negative experiment. In this small reflection, Justin neatly introduces the framework through which we have come to understand GLGS. There was trepidation on all sides as we entered into the course, and Justin here describes the trepidation he shared with several others that we as Cambridge scholars were using Whitemore students as an experiment about prisoners. Mm -hmm. We entered into a time and space together which was liminal and bounded, and in this space participants felt released from the constraints opposed upon them in their institutional context. Free from these constraints, but bounded within the constraints of the course, participants were able to engage in a moral experiment. They co-created a learning space in which they performed the course content in small yet transformative ways. Structurally, our course followed the learning together pattern set out by Armstrong and Ludlow a single term of weekly classes 
meeting for two and a half hours each week, a framework of mutually agreeing course expectations and boundaries at the beginning, discussing after the first few weeks what was going well and what was not going well, responding immediately to feedback where possible and appropriate, and gathering further feedback at the end of the course, each session beginning with a brief lecture, only 20 minutes, from a Cambridge expert on the topic, then a tea break, then small group facilitated discussion of two assigned readings for the week in relation to the lecture. One creative writing session in which, the, which encouraged students to find their voice in relation to the course content, a group project completed in class, and a brief individual essay written by each student outside of class, and finally, a celebration event at the end with food, music, invited guests, including family members and friends, and recognition of achievement on the course. We designed the GLGS course in a tone which was purposefully non-didactic. It did not seek to teach students what is or is not good, how to live or not to live, but rather to reflect on what the good life means in relation to themselves, those around them, the institutions in which they reside, and the society in which those institutions are situated. This approach also governed the role of confessional perspectives. Both student groups and the group of invited lecturers included people of multiple faiths and no faith. We took neither a religious studies approach, trying to introduce perspectives from many faiths non-normatively, nor a confessional theological approach, assuming or arguing the normativity of a particular faith. Instead, our guest lecturers introduced key ideas expounded upon one aspect of that idea from their own academic work, and then invited the small groups to discuss the readings and lecture on that topic in relation to their own life experience, including various convictions arising from faith and philosophical commitments. GLGS met each Wednesday afternoon in Workshop 9 of HMP Whitemore. Everyone entering the workshop for our first gathering did so with various levels of anxious wondering. We, as co-conveners, wondered what would come of all of our planning and preparation, Prison staff wondered if this considerably risky investment would pay off. Whitemore students wondered who these people were from Cambridge and why we were there. As Ken put it, it's so negative in here. You're always like, what's the catch? There's always got to be a catch somewhere. No one ever does anything just out of the goodness of their heart in this place. I couldn't figure out the catch. What are you lot really getting out of it? <laughs> Cambridge students wondered who and what they would find in a high security prison. As Alistair said, I think I was aware I had preconceptions about people in prison, but that didn't mean I didn't have them anymore. I still had a kind of picture in my head of the kind of person who would be in prison. Some anxieties arising from mistaken preconceptions disappeared quickly. So Alistair said, that preconception was blown apart within the first five minutes of arriving. One of them came up and shook my hand and asked me how my experience of coming to the prison was and how the journey was and asked me what I was studying. I hadn't been expecting him to take an interest in me or who I was or to be the leader in the conversation. For others, overcoming the initial nerves took a few weeks. A lot of people were nervous in the beginning because you don't know, you don't know who you were going to meet or anything like that. But even the students when they came in, they were a little bit nervous. But after a week or two, maybe three, it was just like a few people sitting in a pub having a drink, just chatting. For some, only the entirety of the course could overcome these initial suspicions. It wasn't really up until the celebration when I was like, actually, you just really want to do something to help. It actually came through when you lot were giving your speeches. Workshop 9 was not in itself a terribly conducive space for creating a learning environment. 
Neither the education nor the chaplaincy venues in the prison were appropriate for our needs, and we also wanted to avoid our course being categorized as either the formal educational provision already in prison or the various religious courses put on by the chaplaincy. We were doing something in between the two, yet different from both. This left us with only one option, an enormous and cavernous workshop space, which was also used for Muslim Friday prayers, being the only space large enough for the approximately 41% Muslim population in the prison. The liminality of the physical space echoed the liminality of the learning space we were co-creating. It was something in between prison and university, yet different from both. It would be different from what any of us had experienced before, but bounded by the small space and time in which we shared the experience. Sarah was honest about the difficulties of the physical space. That room was quite a bit dingy, and it's loud and echoing. I felt like you just can't get out. You're literally just there. That was something that really stuck with me, actually. There's no escape. You're just there. You can't be like, okay, I'm going now. Andy compared the experience of the physical space to camping. The room wasn't the best room. The furniture wasn't comfortable. The kettle wasn't in the right place. There were things that were wrong, but they weren't wrong. It was all part of, well, it was like camping out. Like camping, what would be inconveniences in other circumstances became part of the enjoyment of the experience. And this added to the ways in which it could be a different sort of learning space. I imagine it's as different as if sitting in a classroom and everyone's facing the teacher and the teacher is telling you something or going out on a field trip and learning something. This was like a field trip where you learned something. Paradoxically, both the limitations of the space and our time together contributed to positive boundedness to the experience. Like a field trip, it was a learning experiment which was bounded by limitations of time and space, yet those very limitations gave rise to new possibilities beyond those in the spaces participants normally inhabit. I think it's about having a bounded space and bounded time, noted Vanessa. Even, those who, even though those feel like massive constraints to start with, there's massive opportunity in that. An important way in which the liminality of the space was constructed was the sharing of small practices which we might call micro-rituals. Shaking hands upon arrival each week, talking over tea and biscuits in the break, and saying goodbyes at the end of the, each session, which of course sound like nothing in a way, but if you think about the difference between that and entering and leaving a normal classroom for a lecture if you're a student, or entering and leaving any space in a prison if you're a prisoner, those are actually um, very different kinds of behaviors. Several participants spoke of the organic nature of how these micro-rituals arose and how important they were in the creation of the space. They spoke of barriers between themselves and others falling when they were approached with a handshake, which became the way we all greeted one another upon arrival each week. And many spoke of how the most important conversations and learning happened in the tea break or in the space for saying goodbyes at the end of each session. One of the interesting dynamics was that I'd find we would have a formal discussion and then we would have a tea break or we'd be saying goodbye at the end and that's when we'd get into something that was deeper. It's something interesting about not having fixed parameters, but just trusting each other enough in the space that we'd created. People learn to share personal experiences in a deeper way and get into more of a discussion and talk about their faith. The liminal space, bounded by our physical space and limited time, and given shape by organically arising micro-rituals, allowed students to feel released from the constraints of the institutions which they inhabit, both the high-security prison and the elite university. 
Many Whitemore students commented that during the course each week, they felt released. And this is, let's see, one, two, three, four, five quotes I'll read in a row. I felt I'm studying with students and a bit of normality and being around normal people. It's just a break away from, well, I enjoyed it. The course that you run sort of took me out of prison for the days when we, were, when, we were, when we turned up on the course. It took my mind away from prison. It was a totally different environment. I just felt as if I was half free. I knew I was in prison, but I felt free. What you gave me was you took away all the boundaries that prison has, the restrictions that make it uncomfortable. I felt like not being in prison for, prison for a bit. It was like a sense of freedom being there. You know, it's Wednesday afternoon, I'm going there. It's an escapism kind of thing. Their sense of release from the constraints of the prison context was described in relation to being with different people from outside, having their minds open to new ideas and ways of seeing, and also seeing one another differently. Jacob said, there's always a saying in prison, you don't need new friends. Many Whitemore students noted that people in prison whom they would never have spoken to, whom they would never have thought to speak to, became their friends outside the relational constraints of prison. Nathan and Stephen were one example. They practiced two different faiths and do not have the same social networks in Whitemore. Stephen had been quietly completing a university degree unbeknownst to most of his peers. Nathan said after the course, there's other people that was on that course that I've actually been in workshops with in the prison, and I've never spoke with them. And in my own group, Stephen, he was somebody that was, I was in workshop five with him before. I didn't even recognize him. I was in workshop five with that person for five months. I never once was able to have as much interaction with that person as I did on the course. So that, and you know, how much he had achieved and what I saw from him about his discipline for doing his university degree in that, I thought that was amazing for me to see. Friendships between participants created a sense of relationality and care, which felt unlike anything else in the prison context. As Ken described it, it's hard to put into words. It's just the impact of that positive experience. Someone is just there, and they're just doing this because they want to do this, because they care. It's a very positive thing to get from it, because everything else that we do in here, well, you go to education. It's just bums on seats. They get paid to get you through the courses, so quick courses. Let's just get you through like a factory psychology department. You can't talk to them. They don't understand the world we live in. So how can you relate to us? Even when someone does open up to them, they can't understand it. So you can never really be open with them. The same with the officers. As much as you might get along with them, they're not your friends. So you're constantly living with that. That's what I mean. When you've got something and it's just there for your sake, again, you think we're not trying to do anything to you. We're just really here to try and help you. It's kind of like, do people really still do that kind of thing? Is this really happening in the world? Cambridge students also felt released from the constraints of their context in important ways. This observation should by no means be taken as a suggestion that there's any parity in the restrictions of prison life and restrictions of university life, though some may feel that way in moments. It is not meant to downplay the harsh realities of incarceration. Rather, the experience of GLGS made Cambridge students aware of some significant constraints in their university experiences, which were alleviated in the shared space they co-created with the students resident in Whitemore. Just as some Whitemore students spoke of being able to remove their prison masks when arriving in the learning space, some Cambridge students also realized they were able to remove academic masks, which actually limit their learning in the university classrooms and supervisions. 
Henry described how he used academia as a mask to cover the constraints of his independent school and Cambridge context. My very privileged experience have been quite, have been quite repressive. That realization was hammered home to me through these things. Henry realized that the university context he had been able to, in the university context, he'd been able to study theology as a distraction from personal development instead of as part of it. Here in Cambridge, I don't think action and theory necessarily go hand in hand at all, which again, I think is a frustration because especially in things like theology, you feel like they should. I think mainly it's a drive for knowledge accumulation. I call it the foie gras model of learning, where if you force as much down you, then hopefully you'll produce a good pate at the end. <laughs> I think it's just this pursuit for knowledge that's abstracted from who you are. That priority is very much a dry acquisition of knowledge, which weirdly I love because it's a distraction. It's not necessarily one that has enabled personal growth. Cambridge students spoke particularly of being released from the constraints of competitive learning environments in which students are trained to assert themselves and their own arguments instead of listening attentively to others, even to the others of the texts that they study. Anna described how reading texts in Cambridge was for finding out what you could take out of the text for your own argument, whereas reading texts in GLGS was for opening up discussion and ideas with others. I guess it makes you think a lot about the different value, what the different value of the text is for different people, instead of only looking for these bits that were of value for me and were going to help my argument. These liberations from university constraints should not be misunderstood as lack of academic rigor or the replacement of knowledge acquisition with personal self-awareness. Rather, students described academic knowledge as being acquired at greater depth when co-produced in the GLGS learning space. Consider the following reflection on a conversation between two postgraduate students. We were looking at one of the questions, and it was about recognition. I think it was something like, what makes you a person? And she said this was the first time that she really felt like she actually had to think. I mean, she thinks all the time. She's doing a PhD. But it kind of demanded more of her. And from the beginning, it was clear it would demand something more of us. For Laura, GLGS not only asked more of her, but allowed her to retain more knowledge. I love this. I think anybody who's ever been in any postgraduate seminar will identify with this immediately. I think it makes you far more attentive. I realized I got back from the first session that evening. I was having dinner with my now fiancé, and I could just remember so much about it. I could remember so much about the content. I could remember it in a way that I can hardly ever remember what lectures are about. <laughs> and I can hardly ever remember what people's papers are about. And I often wonder if there's something I can't remember in the academic environment because I'm so concerned thinking about either a clever question to ask or trying to work out what on earth is going on. And I'm so distracted by the fact that I feel stupid. I'm not even listening and I'm not even taking it in compared with learning together, which I suppose I felt able to ask questions without looking stupid. So I'm already engaged and I feel free to, I guess, just say what I think about things. And if you're engaging in that way, it's far more likely that you're actually going to retain what is being discussed. And likewise, if other people's questions are similarly actually genuinely authentically inquisitive, then you're also genuinely going to have to engage more thoroughly with the content. 
In this liminal bounded learning space in which co-creating students felt released from the constraints of the institutions which they inhabit and able to relate both content and relate to both content and people differently and at greater depth, the students were not only having an important personal and relational experience alongside learning some important academic content. Instead, we have come to understand the course as a site of performance of the content. As Ian put it, we were modeling, performing, if you like, what a good society looks like in that place with these people. Students who had been studying theology and philosophy as academic subjects noticed and welcomed the difference between studying these as subjects and becoming subjects who were performing them. A philosophy student said, I was always in favor of taking philosophy outside of the classroom and bringing it back to the world, to the streets, as the ancients conceived of philosophy, which was a way of life. Now it's become an academic discipline, just like any other. GLGS became a way to take philosophy and philosophers outside of the abstract space, classroom, and lectures. Theology students also remarked that taking their subject out of the classroom and performing it helped them understand it anew. Sebastian said of the course content, it's not just an idea you read about in a book, but you actually know. You kind of experience its reality. It's got practical force, normative power, and that you only really appreciate when you know that other people share this experience. It's not just a subjective moment in your study. It's actually something historically there. Henry described the difference for him in terms of both enjoyment and realizing the importance of his studies. The enjoyment of it is something you're involved in. You participate in the knowledge. You're not just analyzing it as something that's out there. It becomes part of you. You feel attached to it in a way that is a lot more meaningful than just writing a supervision essay. I'm incredibly grateful for that because it means I have, in at least a very small way, forced myself to interact with my academic life in a way that's more than just analytic or abstract. There's an inherent enjoyment and beauty in seeing these things that do interact with the content, which in many ways it was very effective for someone who had a background in Christian theology and ethics. There's a realization that what I've been doing is important in some way, and I think I've lost that. A lot of stuff I've done over the past three years has felt like doing a very satisfying crossword, and it's, <laughs> and it's quite nice to see it's not just on a page. Annabelle was writing her PhD, and by the end of the course, she felt like she had participated in the enactment of her research subject as it intersected with the course content. We don't know these things statically in isolation and with essential truths like, who am I? I'm a student. I'm a woman. Or I live in prison. I'm a Christian. I'm a Muslim. These are not things we know that we can recollect. They're things that we know through repetition, through doing, which is something I was aware of these kinds of ideas because that's what I study and I like that, but it was kind of like an exercise in doing it in that respect. One prison staff member attended most of the sessions as a student participant. And although he remained somewhat skeptical of the actual impact in the lives of the prisoners, by the end of the course, he noticed at the celebration event, maybe it was subconsciously, but they were all living the principles we had discussed. It was just a really good day. I thought it was brilliant. Some of the conceptual threads which kept recurring across several readings and lectures, particularly those by criminologist Alison Liebling, theologian Rowan Williams, and social anthropologist Paul Anderson, were personhood, recognition, and empathy, and the role of these in both personal and political flourishing. 
Liebling described recognition as the deepest form of respect, which ascribes positive status to persons, and argued that relationships of recognition are necessary for human flourishing. Rowan Williams described empathy in terms of being able to imagine other people's perspectives in order to live ethical lives, but also asked whether something more than empathy was needed in order to understand citizenship in terms of genuine responsibility to one another. Anderson argued that ethics should not be considered only in terms of high-profile controversial issues, but in terms of mundane daily relationships and, and conduct. In this vein, he considered everyday civility and whether it could contribute to something as deep as recognition or as political as citizenship. It was especially clear to the students that they had been performing empathy and recognition of one another's personhood in the course sessions. I think the recognition and the Rowan Williams ones were similar to what we were trying to do, said Elliot. I've got no idea what it's like to be in prison. I didn't know people who were in a high security prison. I didn't know what their life is like, what the sequence of events is that leads some, someone in your life to be. I think that what Rowan was talking about was that you need to get to know someone better. You need to actively go after that knowledge and that will help you understand people to have empathy for them. As Laura put it, the course con content demanded performance rather than mere discussion, and this came more naturally to some than to others. I think the content of the course that we were studying, it just makes so much more sense of that, content, of that content if you apply it to yourself and the relationships that you're in and know. That's what those ideas are asking of you. It's perverse not to let them ask that of you. Like it goes against theology and philosophy to treat those things like they're not going to affect you. So I suppose they are properly realized as you understand them in relation to other people. And particularly like that recognition and personhood stuff, it's still so memorable to me, and I think it's because I've allowed it to relate not only to particular readings, but also to the way I understand particular relationships. And that's what the whole thing is for, isn't it? That's the thing that at least gives me energy. It's not just sense to the point of being sense, it's sense to make sense. It's supposed to clarify things. It's supposed to make our lives better. It's, supposed to, it's not supposed to be just an ornamental, interesting thing. Yes, and it really was the prisoners at Whitemore that just had no question about that, just knew that kind of intuitively, that they seemed to just know that it wasn't just ornamental, it's actually supposed to change your life. Within the agreed constraints of the learning space and freed from some significant constraints in their institutional context, these participants brought together the resources of their own personal experience and the best of their institutional formation in ways in which, al which allowed for new experiences of both relationality and knowledge construction, which were intertwined in their performance of the course content. So, leaving the learning space, goodbyes and conclusions. As the course proceeded, we became increasingly aware of the weightiness of our goodbyes each week and the toll it would take on all the students as they made the somewhat surreal transition out of the moral laboratory which we had constructed <clears throat> together back into the context from, from which they had experienced a sense of liberation. Surprisingly, there was a prominent thread from the interviews with the Whitemore students about leaving the learning space and going back into the prison context on a high. So this is three different quotes. You come back on a high because you've just been learning something new, something different. Coming onto the wing, it was like, I was kind of like walking on clouds. Oh yes, you come back on a high, it was lovely. I enjoyed coming back, I was on a total high. 
There was also honesty about the frustrations of going back. As Nathan put it, it was coming back from the course, and then I have to deal with an officer with a very arrogant mindset, with a very stubborn, very, very, very minute things. And I just think, we're all talking about this over here, but we're doing this over here. And I just thought, oh, man. <laughs> Anna described how it felt to arrive back in Cambridge in the early evening after each course session, moving directly into the formalities of a college dining hall and trying to discuss the course with her friends. Just a bit out of place, I think. I don't know. I think, I guess I've been somewhere very different where also in a sense you feel really quite accepted. Just trying to make sense of the relationships because obviously in talking you would sometimes be talking about personal things. As in, did, you did feel like you were forming bonds with people, but then also very quickly you would be back in this environment with your, I don't know, normal friends and they just wouldn't, I guess it was like things not being able to translate. Stephen similarly described going back into onto the prison wing after course sessions, and particularly the session on finding your voice. You've just had two, two, a good two and a half hours spending with different people, chatting, and then you come back to the wing, and you're still on that adrenaline rush, kind of like, yeah, it was good, this. Then people are like, where have you been? And you chat to people about it, and I don't think they can grasp it until they've actually experienced it. If you say, we had a wicked time, we did this, and this happened, especially the poetry. We're writing poems together and we're doing this. People probably look at you and think they can't really understand the magnitude of that situation and the experience until they've lived it. And then you kind of have to switch back to, yep, I'm a prisoner. Perhaps Tom best encapsulated the mixture of joy and pain experienced, experienced by us all as we left the learning space and the course when it finished. It's kind of that high. You're excited about it because you're seeing new people. You're meeting new people. And you go on the course and you're like, oh, this is a day out. It's a lot different. And from such a high, it goes obviously to such a low. Because, because you lot, we know you're going back to your lives, your students or whatever. And obviously, we're just going back to our cell and getting on with prison, which is, I don't know. It's a high and a low. But the high is worth going down there for, to put up with the low. Because you need highs in life. They give you hope. Without hope, there's no life, is there? That's it, really. Even outside or inside, no matter where you are, without hope, there's no life, is there? For a couple of hours, on a few months of Wednesdays, something happened in Workshop 9 of HMP Whitemore. A small handful of students grasped the opportunity to bring with them all that was best about the institutions in which they resided, particularly the fertile moral lives and philosophical imaginations which they all possessed, and which had been nurtured institutionally in different ways. And they grasped the opportunity to find release from some of the constraints of the institutions in which they resided, particularly the resistance to encountering and truly recognizing the personhood of others in ways which cultivate both moral and intellectual virtue. Together they entered this space which was liminal and bounded, physically, temporally, and experientially, and co-created a moral experiment in living good lives in a good society. The space was given shape by micro-rituals and small yet transformative performances of the course content. As Sebastian put it, I think for everyone it's a bit of an experiment. It's a bit of a risk. I think everyone's just going to see what's going to happen. No one's got any big expectations. I think that's quite nice. It makes sense. And that certainly was the case with me. I was just going to take what came, and fortunately, it was lovely. According to Armstrong and Ludlow, learning together, 
learning together uses learning as a means to connect people who otherwise may be unlikely to meet. It aims to do this through co-creating learning spaces with, within prison, whereby students who are currently imprisoned study alongside students from a local university. However, they are also careful to note, we are not involved in some experiment of social proximity. Grounded in Ferrer's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, we seek to create learning communities within prisons that provide an education that is forged with, not for, students, and which recognize, nurture, and empower a sense of personhood grounded in connection that transcends difference. So that's all from the framers of learning together. While we also approached our work on the course in terms of seeking transformational possibilities for all our students, we understand transformation in rather modest terms. Drawing on the ethical and anthropological perspectives outlined above, we have focused our attention throughout the course and in our presentation here, not on the more grandiose potential for large-scale outcomes-based transformation, as important as this may be, but on the small-scale transformations in our small-scale moral experiment in seeking the good. As Mattingly argues, efforts to discern ways of living well in moments and in every day, often unexpected in ordinary spaces. And, this is a quote from Mattingly, if moral life concerns ongoing attempts to realize ground projects, if we take the temporality of morality seriously, in other words, then we can see that small moments and routine activities that at first glance appear repetitious, pre-reflective, or inconsequential come to take on depth as episodes and unfolding narratives of moral striving and as part of a conscious commitment to realize particular visions of the good life. As I noted in the after-course feedback session, in the face of all that needs to be addressed structurally in the prison system, in the university, and in society, it felt like what we were doing was the tiniest drop in an ocean. And yet, it seemed incredibly important that we were able to dwell together for a while in that drop. Or as one of the students noted, reflecting on how all the participants were made to feel unexpectedly normal during GLGS, as compared to their institutional context. And this helped them to see one another as normal too. Actually, we're all just a bit normal, just trying to do something that was normal, which turned out to be extraordinary. Thank you.